2: Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I'm joined by Sarah Jane Bentley and Matt Bianco. Sarah Jane, Matt, how's it going?
3: Very well over here. Thank you. How is it with you guys?
2: It's brilliant over here. We've got some nice crisp fall air. Should we banter about the weather? Or, I mean, is it just <laughs> raining in England? What's the...
3: <laughs> I think it's, it's pretty much the same. We're the same latitude, aren't we? I mean... It would... Yeah. Talking about the weather would be a very British thing to do.
2: (laughs) Have you been walking in the... You said you were going to walk out in the rain with your sister. Did you end up doing that?
3: We did last week. Yes. How was the Welsh stew? That came off well. Did you you make any?
2: I I haven't yet because most of the ingredients I got to order online. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'm sure I could find substitutes, but I am planning to make it sometime between now and Christmas. Um, Speaking of... Um, walking out in the uh, English weather. I feel like reading this book, most of the time when they're walking outside, they're describing walking outside in England. And I'm getting very confused because I feel like this is a very British book, but it takes place in America. And I wanted to ask you something about that in a minute, but I wanted to remind people about how they can get in touch with us. You can uh, remember that you can send your questions in on Facebook, just search Close Reads Discussion Group on Facebook, or you can email them to us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. And of course, you can get in touch with us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Close Pods. Uh, next week, we will conclude the book. We're going to talk chapters 13 through 18 today. And then we will talk the final chapters next week. And then we will do the Q&A episode. So that episode will be dedicated to your questions, things that you want us to talk about that we didn't get to and perhaps some odds and ends that we want to get to that we didn't manage to in these last two episodes. So I guess that means that next week will be the penultimate episode and then we'll do the finale um, on the Rector of Justin series. Which makes today
0: the anti-penultimate episode. Mm-hmm. I just, I just want to what made it. What was last week's episode then? <laughs> the
2: anti-penultimate episode? Proto- the fourth anti- to the last?
3: The pre-anti.
2: <laughs> yeah, the pre <pre-anti>. exactly. <laughs> 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 um, so yeah, we... Um, we're going to talk 13 through 18. And there are a couple of specific things that I want to talk about. Um, so I'm going to actually, I'm going to hold off on my, the Britishness of this book question, because I want to address something that you said off the air last week, Sarah Jane. And then mm. um, there are two chapters in this particular section, which I think are a little bit um, confounding for some people. Um and- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And and also there are just some questions about why they're here. Um there's chapter 14 with the strange scene between Brian and Cordelia and then there is the selection from um I'm, my mind is drawing a blank from what's his name? Charles strong Charles Strongs Charlie little little book Charlie yeah. Um his his little aside which we are told is the one chapter that they saved. And we learned that it was actually Charlie who had burnt it and not her father, but not, not Prescott and Prescott kind of didn't tell her the whole truth and, and all that.
3: I don't know about you that times reading that I was thinking, Oh, what a shame this didn't end up in the flames. <laughs> well,
2: that's, that's exactly <laughs> what I want to talk about because <laughs> the, the things that, um, that Class is doing with the various points of view and the different perspectives are more complicated in this section, I think than throughout earlier parts of the book, because at least Griskin is coherent, right? At least Brian Mm -hmm. is coherent. At least old Horace is fairly coherent and at times even eloquent. But when we get inside Cordelia's head, um, and then when we meet her outside of her head, it's even worse. And then when we get in Charlie's head, it's, relatively incoherent so what do you think the purpose of these these chapters are uh sarah Jane? i'll ask you first because you said off the air that you were um y- you thought that the the chapter 14 was um i think you might have even said poorly written so i want to give you a chance to defend that that um off-air statement that you made to me last week um or maybe at least make the case for that and then i want to talk about charlie and then we can get into you know more on prescott um that we get through um jules griscom's perspectives Hmm. So defend the case on chapter 14 being a poorly written chapter.
3: 14 or 13?
2: Well, 14 is the one with the scene with, um, bunny. Thir-
3: come off it bunny.
2: Yeah. 13 is Cordelia's. Okay. Um, we're still in Cordelia's story that she's telling. To yeah, Brian. But it's from
3: the perspective of Brian.
2: Yeah. Remembering it. And then 14 is the one where it's in Brian's journal. And it's the, the when she kind of tries to, you know, be Delilah.
3: So. Can I defend that Cordelia is is possibly a poorly written character rather than Brian? Yeah, you
2: can, you can make that case. Sure, it's.
3: I don't I don't necessarily think that Brian's um, account is is badly written in in chapter fourteen, but I think the the presentation ah, of Cordelia okay. is somewhat. Um, I don't know. It's it just lacks subtlety and. It, Fair enough, maybe that's the point, but um, she's reclining in pink negligee before a pitcher of martinis, in which she had obviously been imbibing prior to my arrival. (laughs) And then she sits down and has supper with, with Brian, presumably still in her negligee. I mean... Is, is Alkencloth not even going to let her put her clothes back on? I don't, I don't
0: know. That I thought, happens in America all the time. So.
3: Oh, just, <laughs> oh, right, okay, me. fine. <laughs> they are in New York after all.
0: <laughs> exactly.
3: Yeah. Um, um, it made me think a bit of some of those paintings of reclining nudes, but almost like a parody of that. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you've got something very risque but refined, like the Venus Urbino in the Uffizi by Titian. Hmm. Um, And then you get Manet and Degas painting these reclining nudes a bit more crudely, in a bit in a bit more of a kind of modern sort of style. And then and you Condigna got to, to be like one of those.
2: So, but how does that make her? I mean, so it, it, that uh, that illusion is making her too one dimensional, not complicated enough as a character. Is that the case that you're making?
3: Yes, I also, I just don't find it believable. I think that the dialogue is, uh, as Matt picked up on, is, is kind of trite and unconvincing. I mean, she's an intelligent woman. We know that. She's read a lot of literature. She has viewed a lot of art. Cordelia could be more seductive than this, surely.
2: Although the picture of martinis might impact that
3: if she was consistent though with the kind of character that she was presented as in her her little flat in paris i don't know so, well
2: this is what so go ahead matt, matt you're going to say something
0: yeah i i wonder if it's reflective of her ability to adapt to the person she's with
1: hmm. so,
0: so the way she seduces charlie hmm. is different than the way she attempts to seduce brian and and and, of course, this is all from Brian's perspective, too, right? So Brian doesn't necessarily seem perhaps seem like the type of guy who would pick up on subtleties in a woman, <laughs> so then he can't describe them if he's not picking up on them but 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 you're right, like unless he's lying, which there's no reason to believe that he's no. not he's not telling us that she wore a negligee to dinner to supper except because she did. And and so there is this kind of like you're saying, Sarah, I think this, Sarah Jane, there's this um there's this uh, there is this awkwardness to the fact that she's very crudely lying there in her negligee and then and then moves over to the supper table still in her <laughs> negligee, um, that lacks subtlety. But I wonder if she's doing that because she thinks he's not. She, she needs- she's reacting to Brian, right? She's becoming what she thinks Brian will respond to and 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 perhaps perhaps then what is actually her lack of nuance and subtlety is that she's always only ever somebody who's trying to shock another person
3: Mm. yes that's that's really interesting and to be a bit kinder to her perhaps her last and longest relationship was with turnbull wasn't it Mm -hmm. and through that her interaction with a man was it we're told um. Very kind of um. I'm, as you can tell, I'm getting embarrassed even talking about it. <laughs> but there are things that happened with her Turnbull that couldn't even be described in the novel, and that she, I think, she didn't even dare repeat to her father. He
0: shocked her.
3: Yes. So the shocker it, like was she's, shocked. She's learnt this from Turnbull, I, and she's become hardened in a way.
2: One of the things that complicates it, which, and it's so why I brought it up at the beginning, is I think that where as we shift through all these different perspectives, the whole point of the novel is kind of about how people think about other people. So, you know, it, Brian's trying to understand Prescott and he's trying to think about his own experiences with him. His journals are sort of his way of, you know, almost psychoanalyzing to use a theme that keeps coming up his own feelings about Prescott, but then he's also trying to learn about how other people think about Prescott. And so there's this kind of ongoing theme of, the way people think about other people is mm. often very incomplete and biased and prejudiced. And it's, and very rarely do you see the whole picture. I think even in the bit with Jules Griscom, one of the things that it's getting at in Griscom's persp- you know, it's from Griscom's perspective, of course, but he's basically saying Prescott in these moments is attending to certain ideals and not seeing us as individual people. Um, there's even the bit where he talks about his own mother and he says that his mother sought, loved humanity, but didn't love individual people. Mm-hmm. And so I think one mm-hmm. of the things that we're getting at here is this sense of, that the novel's getting at, is this, this sense of how do you actually know a
1: person? Yep. How do you know, well, do you know that, yourself and true. how do
2: you know another person? And so if the book was giving us these really coherent, consistent characters from all these different perspectives, then it would just be the book knowing a person. As opposed to the characters knowing a person, so while I'm not I'm not necessarily disagreeing that Cordelia, for example, is an inconsistent character, or that she's you know perhaps could have been more finely drawn or whatever. I think the challenge for Alcongloss is how do you get at the complication, the complicated ways that people know each other and know themselves, while also offering us something as readers coherent enough to latch onto to make the experience of reading the book you know, cathar to offer it the proper amount of catharsis and resolution and and all those sorts of things. The conflict can't just be in the complicated way that people know each other, but that theme underlying the novel makes our experience with it that much more complicated, if that makes
1: sense.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I think that possibly though when when Alkincloss tries to introduce contrast, it's it's too extreme. So um Matt, you were saying that Brian doesn't really understand subtlety in a woman. I'm not sure if that's true because his first interactions with Harriet are very subtle and gentle um, and he's almost in love with Harriet because it's beyond, it's a cerebral connection. It's beyond how Harriet looks and and she is seen as beautiful even though she's kind of in her twilight years. Um, Whereas, Cordelia, I suppose, it, it attacks his um his prudishness, his kind of puritanical innocence. And maybe that's yeah, maybe that's why Brian is, is unable to respond to her in a way that's sympathetic. Perhaps hmm. he, he calls her a shameless hussy.
2: Hmm. It's interesting that he is. At least as an observation, that that he is more enamored with Harriet, who, as you said, very tactfully is in the twilight of her years, um, as opposed to this person who's actively trying to be seductive. You know, he's kind of repulsed in a way like he runs away. Um, But I wonder why he doesn't run away right away. He stays long enough to have dinner with her. You know, is is he trying to be?
0: Polite. Right. Mm. It, what's interesting too, is that he's careful to point out that she's 15 years, his senior.
1: Mm. So
0: that's, it's, which I hadn't noticed before. I hadn't thought about it, but I, I think you're right, Sarah Jane, that he is, he, there is a kind of attachment or a love for Harriet that uh, allows him to be, to, to see the subtlety and to be sympathetic toward her. But then it's lacking with Cordelia and, and with Cordelia, I, I, the most he's willing to be is apparently as polite, but not sympathetic mm-hmm. or subtle or, you know, to mm-hmm. see the subtleties or anything like that.
3: You know, what's been really um, playing in my mind is the image of the sofa. So, Crebillon is the last word of Harriet. And Crebillon has written this, this novel about the sort of uh, profanity of the sofa, which is this new sort of phenomenon in Parisian society where, you know, people would actually sit down next to one another in the living room and maybe women's ankles would be visible. Um, and then again, we have this image of Cordelia pulling Brian down onto the sofa beside her. And then it's also something that Charlie talks about in his memoir. Um, what does he say? Did you Did you pick up on this? This Sofa coming back again and again, and there's some some tension here between the kind of um, decorum of the drawing room and Prescott's study and then the the more sort of uh profane environment of, of the the living room or the sofa or the bedroom that I think Alkin class is interested in
0: I did not pick up on it. So, uh, I
3: was just wondering why yeah, why do, why <laughs> is Crebillon the last word of Harriet? Because that's you know it's a significant thing. It's brought up twice early in the novel,
2: and Prescott specifically says how very like her or something yeah, to that effect. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I, I'm looking I'm for just that. Trying to find
3: mm. where it is
0: that'd be in fifteen, right? I remember, in um, I do remember him. You know, Cordelia pulling him down onto the sofa beside her. But I don't remember it in the manuscript. I'm trying to find it there.
3: Yeah, it is there in the manuscript. I'm so sorry, I can't find it. Boring for people to listen to. <laughs> um, in, in a side note, um, there is a sense that Cordelia, shall I say, preys on innocent men. So Charlie yes, and Brian yes. are quite an interesting parallel in that sense. Um, and there's actually another reference to Macbeth where Charlie says, there's no bottom. Charlie has no bottom to his voluptuousness. Nay, your wives, your daughters, your matrons, and your maids could not fill up the cistern of my lust. And that's what Malcolm says when he's bluffing to Macduff, <laughs> pretending that he... Um, that he has all these vices that he doesn't actually have. So there is, there is a sense in which um, Cordelia is capable of bringing out the, I don't know what it is, what would Freud say, some kind of Freudian subconscious sexual libido and that Cordelia is the person who will bring that out in the men. And so Charlie and Brian are quite similar in that sense.
2: Well, I was thinking a lot about how there's this, this running theme throughout the book of of um how prescott is always trying to keep the boys from being in situations where they'd be tempted mm-hmm. um yeah. and there's all and then everyone assumes that it's some sort of and then everyone's bringing up all these freudian questions right you know gris young the younger gris can even this accuses his says i don't know enough about freud to know what i'm talking about but he probably had some sort of you know affection for he's talking with his father for uh Frank. like attraction for 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 Prescott, and my favorite thing is when these characters say, "I don't actually know anything about Freud, but but these progressive ideas must be right, and so they must apply somehow yeah um, but there's this there's always this question of of Frank trying to always sort of protect people's purity, keep them out of temptation, things like that, and then his daughter being the one that sort of you know seduces or tries to you know corrupt these men who he has taken under his wing, whether it's Charlie or Brian or even her husband Turnbull, who really likes mm-hmm. Prescott and they become friends. And so she's kind of always her sort of romantic life, putting it generously is sort of always at odds with the, with the ideals and goals of her father and the whole mission of the school. And it, and that seems like that's her, you know, we talked about how her mother says, I never; they never were able to shock me. Yeah. And her attempt to shock seems to be to, to do the opposite, to reverse the work that her father is trying to do in the only way that she knows how to corrupt them. You know, he is trying to, pres- to preserve something by attending to their spiritual life. Mm. And so you, there is something sort of, I guess, you know, Freudian about it, where she, she turns to the ideas of Freud essentially and, and tries to use them to, to corrupt the work that he's trying to do or to preserve in them
0: she uh i was i was wondering i was wondering too as, as you're as you were talking sarah jane if it was if it was not just corrupting these innocent men but corrupting innocent men attached to her father mm-hmm. yeah but it's not right like the catholic that she marries first um that's a rejection of her father in a and sense, then though. yeah and then guy turnbull doesn't meet her father till afterward but then she's frustrated that her father accepts guy turnbull into his you know, confidences or whatever, even after their her relationship with him is over, with guys, right? After their marriage is over and they separated, uh, guy and her father still have a friendship. Uh, that the uh, the sofa passes on two twenty eight. I found it
3: two twenty eight. That's right. Yes, the couvre the couvre PA had fled with democracy. <laughs> I I wonder if it's something about um, an old genteel way an older genteel way of being uh, a kind of decorum uh, kind of elegance of manners that mm. has been lost or swept away by world war one the changing culture um and it all seems to revolve around this image of the sofa and the woman reclining on the chair's long
2: so are we to read prescott then at least in the mind of these various characters as sort of being a agent of preservation of that mm. those manners you know pre-world war one manners is that yeah that seemed to be his his you know reason for being this and the purpose behind the school uh, frank prescott's yeah
0: okay yeah. what did i say i don't i don't know what you said but i heard lewis Auchincloss. Oh, oh yeah <laughs> I,
2: I, like, I guess hey, that's
3: what maybe I also yeah maybe also i Is a kind of nostalgia
2: yeah i mean so and, and I guess then, the, so then, if that's the case, then then the follow up question is the assumption that it's pure nostalgia, or that there is some meant to be something inherently better mm. about those yeah. those manners that that way of that you're talking about, that way of life that you're talking about, Sarah Jane.
3: Yeah. Did you? I don't know if you had a chance to look again at the um, it's the preface I think to Norms and Nobility, where David Hicks talks about the onset of democracy. Uh, specifically at Justin Martyr as this, um, this negative having a negative impact on these kinds of values.
1: I don't remember.
0: I've, I can go run and grab it. <laughs> I was
3: just thinking the same <laughs> thing. Is... I've got my eye on it. It's on my bookcase.
0: <laughs> well, we
3: I... um, and that the school the school it... is trying to prevail against. Um, the, the modern ideas of democracy, well, where the people, the people are God. The Demos is the people.
2: I mean, this is, this is kind of one of the American questions. <laughs> like, what are we costing ourselves by valuing democracy hmm. and what does democracy enable? Um, well, that's an English question too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There- uh, Eva Brand has a book called um, "The Paradox of Education in a Republic." That's about modern, or about Mar- the founding of America, and, and, and then the establishment of education, and talking about how you have to, how you have to educate a people who are bold enough to revolt against their oppressors when needed, but submissive enough to. <laughs> to, you know, (laughs) maintain the Republic as it's, you know, as it is. Um, And and Mm. just the paradox of trying to educate two different kinds of kinds of people. Mm. But I, I, you see perhaps something of that, right? Like he's trying to create men who are manly enough to, you know, fit this kind of stereotype or this image, this type that he has for them. Who are
2: capable of feats of strength.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But then, but then, not so reckless in their manliness that they throw off him or God or religion or virtue, you know, virtue or these kinds of these kinds of principles that we're, that, we're, that we ought to live by. And Brian is, of course, not doesn't fit his image of what it means to be a man, at least at mm-hmm. the beginning. but here is the one who can stand up to. Cordelia.
2: And then there's Charlie as an interesting sort of model of a student who goes through there, who is physically capable, like talks about his physical prowess, right? Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. And who goes off and, you know, fights in the war and is kind of ruined by it. And so, but then, so then, what, what, what is able to withstand what that he's been given through Justin Martyr is is able to withstand what he goes through in the war.
3: It's uh, such Mm. a central question in the novel, isn't it? What makes a man? I think, especially in this section, it comes up several times explicitly. And that, uh, as you've already said a little bit, that Cordelia is trying to shock her father by um, winning some sort of competition. She says, I certainly was in competition with Pa. My two men were men after all. So she takes his best prefect and then she takes the businessman who is uh, a kind of a bit of a fascination for Prescott. Because if we remember, Prescott had always had this interest in business and the world of profit, mm-hmm. although he didn't give into it. Um, and then again, she says on page 216, give me Beethoven. At least he was a man. Um, and this, this question comes up again and again. So the novel, in a way, is a quest for what is the real male, and is Justin Martyr so, is it producing them? Is in, it cultivating the real man?
1: Yeah, in
0: in Norms and Nobility, kind of the kind of the two questions that ride through it from from one end to the other. Uh, but, but but Hicks basically states is questions that have to be answered with respect to education when you're educating you have to answer the question what is god and what are the purposes of man
3: yes you need an an anthropology yeah
0: yeah and 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 then that seems now what what's happening here right so you know i mean in the in earlier episodes we kept we kept focusing on and noticing the these questions surrounding what is god and Mm. to what extent is frank god or is frank synonymous with god at least um and now we're now we're starting to see a development of the, or an emphasis, or it's coming out in our conversation anyway. The emphasis on the what is man part, or the purposes of man, what does it mean to be a man? Aspect of it.
3: What do you think of the idea that for all of the materialists in the novel who Frank encounters, because they are unable to conceive of something immaterial, rather than seeing God reflected in Frank, they see God or Frank, as God, which is a mistake. And as, as you were arguing last week, there is a, a true Prescott who the reader can know, which is, is ultimately through Brian. And Brian is able to see God reflected in Frank. And he repeats that several times when he's discussing um, Charlie's manuscript. Whereas the materialists are not able to see that because there's, there's no you know, hope for what is unseen. It's only the seen worlds that exists for them. Mm. I wonder mm. if Arkencloss is challenging that idea.
1: Yeah.
0: I, that makes a lot of sense to me that that's perhaps what's happening there because you see just, I mean, with that, with the, I mean, the explicit comments on mm. a person being a materialist or on materialists. Um, but then even, even the way you see them and, those characters interact with Frank, right? Like, like uh, Griscom trying to tend to create Frank in this image that he has for what he ought to be.
3: Yeah, hmm. that's right. Um, and so, this this is where the confusion comes, uh, perhaps, for the other characters, which which perhaps Alcott is quite skillful at showing, and that the reader has to somehow navigate through that. To see the difference between faith and idolatry. Um, the, the question about yeah, even the
2: resent even the ideology idolatry that's sort of bound up in resentment, it's still yeah. it's, it's still fundamentally a sort of idolatry.
3: Is it mm. what
0: are, what is the what are the what are the two heresies, <laughs> as it were, being represented by a griscom and a cordelia, right? Because Griscom is Which
2: Griscom, older or younger?
0: Older Griscom, good question. Yeah. Older Griscom is trying to like he, it's almost like he's saying Frank is God, and this is how I yeah. want him to be seen and represented and pictured. Mm-hmm. And then Cordelia's is is if if my father's God, he's imperfect, he's broken, he's which he's he's it's more emphasis on the human side than the divine side, as it were.
2: which brings us to the conversation that Young Griscom has with Frank in the classroom about polytheism. And they're yep. talking about Frank's telling him if you if there's polytheism, you know that's why people saw the world as sort of a dark place because they were just competing with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's it's as and it's as if she kind of views him as like a pagan god, like a sort of Zeus figure,
1: mm-hmm.
2: whereas Griscom sort of views him as a I don't you know we can you said heresy we can you know I, I don't know what the, the comparison exactly is. You know.
3: <laughs> I think he sees him as a kind of demigod and if, if Griscom had half a chance, he would erect a bronze statue of Prescott and kind of encourage people to bow down to it. And it was as Sylvester said um, that Prescott, you know, oh yeah, well, he can be whatever you want him to be. It's mm. just great to have a role model. <laughs> doesn't doesn't really matter what exactly he stood for. We've forgotten all that now.
2: So So there's obviously a place for... Role models, can iconog- you know, icons of good things, so to speak, in, in yes. our lives, particularly in education. So is it that Griscom has taken that too far? Like he doesn't have a balance for it. He doesn't recognize that 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 Frank Prescott is sort of an icon for a certain set of virtues, but he's still human and 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 then Cordelia doesn't recognize that he can be an icon or sort of representative of certain kinds of virtues. And so she sort of is only consumed with his sort of human, complicated nature, as I suppose sometimes happens with parents, right? But then is so there's Brian's meant to be sort of the character in the middle that sort of yeah. balances that out, balances mm-hmm. out those two perspectives.
3: Griscom thinks that paradise is here on this earth, so he can't see beyond. I think is the, is the problem. Whereas Prescott is always teaching to look beyond. He says at one point in this section, there's no difference between the pulpit. And the schoolroom, he says, I tried to put a bit of God into everything, <laughs> just, you know, uh, as if he wasn't already there. And um,
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Whereas Cordelia, I think, has bought into some Freudian idea that we're all just a product of our desires and our desires are some sort of chemical reaction. I mean, that's a kind of gross oversimplification of Freudian theory, but that seems to be what Cordelia is about. She's about getting power and manipulating people emotionally.
0: Mm. And and Brian says of that, that the war is hardly worth winning if our boys are going to have to come home to women like her.
3: I know, that is brutal. (laughs) But it's sad for Cordelia because she sees her father... Then, as cold and hard and distant, because he doesn't succumb to her ma- emotional manipulation.
2: Mm. Yeah, and there's all these great scenes that remind me in some ways of *Brideshead*, where yeah. where she's trying to manipulate him, and he just looks at her and he gives her. In one scene, he gives her a wink, and it kind of changes the whole tone of the scene. And I think he gives up <laughs> and walks away, and he he
3: and he forgives.
2: Yeah, yeah, he's he is very consistent, even in his own manipulation so to speak like when he manipulates when he kind of controls the thing about burning the book or he makes her come home and he, every day he, he has these certain habits of these sort of like formal ways of interacting with her he has breakfast every day with her but he has certain expectations of her but he's not going to let her control him hmm. and, and it's like those those bits of formal interaction such as at breakfast are how he engages with her but keeps her at arm's length he sort of controls their relationship in a way that probably she needs but also he knows he will allow him to maintain the
0: controlling peace that he
2: needs i think
0: he mm. he says he says children don't need to be loved they need devotion, they need the devotion right mm. so is that is that what he means is that what it means to be devoted he rather than love
2: does loved? seem devoted to her
3: that's right and that's even in her indiscretions hip- Love and faith are a matter of actions. He says that at one point as well. That faith is something that uh, is, is not really about contemplation. He seems to think it's about virtuous action, embodiment. Yeah, that's what he says at one point.
2: Which is why then it would make sense that he is consumed with sort of physical prowess, because you have to be, the yes. stronger yes. you are, the more capable you are of taking right action of embodying faith and love. Mm-hmm.
3: Exactly. And also why he has this great regret um, that he never fought in a war and he confesses it to Charlie. That uh, We spoke a little bit about courage last yeah. week, I think, <sighs> that, that Charlie has fought in a war and Prescott is, is almost envious of this because he would have liked the opportunity to demonstrate what he could have done. Um, but Charlie sort of says, you know, you, you don't need to. And, and Prescott is often compared to generals. It happens again on page 230, where Charlie describes him as um, a general. He says, I, I see myself as an ed de camp standing on a hilltop over the battle, absorbed in my general's tactics and mindless of the shells and bullets over my head. Hmm. So the leadership that Prescott provides is, this is
0: his time as a. He calls himself the rector's hound, right? What was he yeah.
3: a prefect or something? That's right. He's the sort of the head boy or the head prefect. Um, and I, I got interested in this bit, in, in the sermon, and how it relates to his relationship with Charlie, what Prescott expects of his prefects. So he gives a sermon, doesn't he, on the, the laborers in the vineyard when he comes back to, press, to Justin Marta as the emeritus professor.
0: Oh yeah, in Brian's journal. Yeah, that's yeah. in sixteen or something. And two thirty-five, right? Yeah, two thirty-four, two
2: thirty-five.
3: And so I wondered what you what you thought about the significance of that. Why that sermon? Why that parable? Because he seems to be almost um, using that sermon to uphold everything he believes about a life of service and altruism serving the community
2: it it says too that the note of suddenly the note of levity fell away a pucker appeared in his brow and the tone deepened so you know if if he you know we're meant to take this moment seriously certainly
0: Mm. i think he's preaching to himself i agree i think he's saying i'm the i'm the day-long Laborer, and then what's the guy's name that's taken his place?
3: Duncan Moore, is it?
0: Moore, yeah. Doctor Moore is a late minute, last minute, you know, guy that shows up. But uh, in the Lord's eyes, that they're both, you know, equal the same. They both ah, earn the same rewards, right? And Frank's um, talking to himself, yeah. like, stop being such a baby about this, right? Mm. This is Doctor, you know, Duncan's doing good. Is doing the work because on well, the very next scene, he kind of. He takes it all, but yeah, he, he, well, then you see in the very next scene, you see why he needed to preach that sermon to himself, right? Yeah. Because he doesn't feel it. But then mm. when he says to Brian later, he says, when he says, don't come back to visit me anymore. it's I, mm. I mean, Yeah. Oh, on page 241, he says, I'm put off by the merest trifles. I can still see that they're trifles, but the time may be coming when I won't. I want you to remember me as I was. Um, So it's like, it's like, I mean, that's, and that's sometime later from the first instance, I guess, but the, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he knows he's being kind of childish about it. So
1: is his, (laughs) go ahead.
3: Well, he seems to contradict himself there because earlier he said, you know, you're trying to bury me under my own reputation. And now he seems to be quite happy to be buried by it. (laughs) (laughs)
2: yeah So is this sending away when he sends Brian away the same as when he sends the elder Griscom away? Where he says you you don't need me, you, Brian says you don't need me, and he says no you don't. And then earlier, David Griscom is saying, "I want to stay here and teach," and he says no you have to go away because you can't you can't teach you need to teach here because it's your calling to teach, not because you need to feel safe here. Yeah. So I was saying I was wondering is the same thing happening here? Is it sort of like in the in the Narnia books where Aslan tells them you know they say we want to stay and he says no it's not your time to stay? Is it mm-hmm. something like that where he's sort of challenging them and you know he,
0: is, is he saying here go away and don't come back like not even to teach later on because because at one point he says he says that he sees brian as a teacher there someday mm-hmm. and it, but then is here he taking that away from him and saying no don't come back here to teach i don't, I don't know if not know if he I,
2: saying remember. don't or just don't come back while i'm alive or don't come back and see me because he's not at the school
3: is it perhaps to do with oh, right. what Prescott sees as the need for Brian to put down roots and establish himself and gain his confidence? He says, Prescott says, um, my personality is too powerful.
1: <laughs> yeah. And
3: what he doesn't, what Prescott doesn't want, the mistake that people keep making in the novel is they worship Prescott. And that's that's not what Prescott's about. He's sort of trying to point to something beyond himself. Um, and he he's really encouraged. Brian to go and do his theology degree and to become ordained. And he would, he would like to see Brian develop the confidence to be a minister on his, on his own merit and not dependent on Prescott, not mm. living in his shadow. Yeah, But perhaps Prescott is aware of his own um, ability to limit, limit those who, who he teaches. There was a great quotation. I wish I had it in front of me from, Um, David Hicks, again, his translation of um, Marcus Aurelius's sort of proverbs about how um, the authority of a teacher can somehow limit the uh, development of the student, Hmm. which I thought worked well in terms of the relationship between Brian and Frank.
0: Hmm. That's the question that I think I have of Frank that just keeps kind of rolling around in my head at this point like okay so with respect to Cordelia I think you could ask this of any character of all the characters the boys the students the teachers Chriscom is 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 Frank simply kind of a sovereign over all of the lives that he interacts with over the school over the community in a way that that they all have their their will, their free will to act and do as they choose, but he's kind of all things are working together for good to those that love Frank, kind of thing. <laughs> um, yeah. Where or or is he actually much more controlling and manipulative to where they're losing their will, they're losing their sense of individual individual personality, individual person, and they're and everything's just doing everybody is just having to do what Frank wants
1: Mm.
0: even in their rebellion, they're doing what Frank wants. I mean, as it were, not really, but, um,
2: it seems like responding
3: to him.
0: Yeah. It seems like
2: one of the big questions that the novel is asking and that Frank is asking in the school is how do you balance those two things? How do Mm. you balance sort of discipline in service of pursuit of in the service of pursuit of virtue, so to speak, with, with cultivating the individuality of specific people? And that Absolutely. you
1: see
2: that same, you, and again, the question of individuality keeps coming up in all these different perspectives. And All these characters who are trying to know themselves and then figure out what that means for them, but also, you know, they're either going. So many characters are either choosing themselves at the cost of the virtues that Frank is pursuing, mm. or they're following his will until they, as you, as you put it, until they sort of don't feel like they're themselves anymore. They kind of lose themselves.
0: Well, it's like if you took the prodigal son story, right? Is, you know, is there is there one character that's like that older brother that's just always there, always feeling like, you know, he's doing exactly what the father wants. Ives. And yeah. And then (laughs) but then feels if then feels unappreciated for it, which I don't think would be Ives, maybe. And then and then there's the younger brother who's you know, just give me my stuff. I'm going to go and I'm going to live my own life. And then they come back when they see to it when they come to themselves, as it says in the prodigal son story. You Which know, is more like himself. Charlie, maybe. Yeah. In
3: some ways, that Charlie comes back.
0: I, I guess is, is 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 Frank being oppressively controlling? Is Frank being perfectly free, letting them be perfectly free in in, in ways that's appropriate to who they are and and to himself and or and yeah human nature and then, or is he himself actually struggling with I've, I've been overbearing here and not bearing, not bearing enough here, and
2: I mean, I, it seems to me like one of the questions is, is there that fine line between those two things? Can that even exist? Hmm. Like can you be after the sort of thing that Frank is after? Can that be your mission, your vocation, whatever you want to say, and still allow for the Pursuit of individuality, I guess. I guess. I mean, it goes. And even there, there's the question of democracy sort of comes up, right? Like, is mm-hmm. is can can you can you? I mean, if if democracy is about you know the the voice of the individual, then can you can you pursue the the individual good and also pursue the sort of collective good at the same time? Are they ever? Do they ever go together? Yeah, um, seems to be one of the big questions.
3: Does that also bring us back to the parable in the sermon? Because it's really about equity and about a conception of equity that doesn't sit comfortably in an environment where hard work and effort and striving is is being taught as virtuous. So the labourers in the vineyard, at whatever point they turn up, they still are going to enjoy the same reward. And it's followed immediately by Frank uh, being really upset about the fact that the boys won't queue up to go into the dining <laughs> hall anymore. Sorry, they won't make a line.
2: <laughs> no, we know <got>, queue. <laughs> we know queue. We
3: know queue. Okay. <laughs> um, and he says, the word you know, we should be using more. It, it shouldn't matter. They they should um, wait their turn. And whether they're in there first or last, they're going to get the same reward. And then he actually chastises himself on page 239 for being guilty of this inability to practice the equity that he preaches, because he says, you know, he loved Charlie more than his other prefect, whose name I forget, because Charlie had charm and um, the other chap didn't. And, and he really chastises himself for being so um, unequal with his affections.
2: Yes, when just he's comparing one- him to Mar- Martin Day, who has just, just died in the war.
3: Martin Day, that's right, because Martin Day didn't try to earn his affections through charm, whereas Charlie did. And so he, he's sort of preaching a kind of equity that um, he struggles to meet himself. And, and that must be a really difficult thing for headmasters, that they, they do have to set themselves up as paragons of virtue. And then the dangers are either that um, they fail in their own in meeting their own standards, or as you mm-hmm. said, people want to become clones of them rather than wanting to imbue and practice the virtues that are being extolled, mm. and that's such a difficult boundary to negotiate. I'm Is really it- fascinated by headmasters. I think it must be one of the most difficult jobs in the world.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's not dissimilar, though, with, for the teacher in the classroom, right? Like, don't we struggle with or a parent? Or parent, right, struggling with the students who have charm yeah. and those who don't, and
2: or your own personality, like the the, the positives and negatives of your own personality become, you know, because you can't let you, neither your your uh, you can't let your baser well not your baser your your mm. more negative instincts as a teacher rule the room, but you also can't right. like let the kids who you love the most rule the room, or that are easiest yeah. to interact with.
3: Um. Yeah, and this, this is where Gnosticism is interesting in the novel as well, that um, Frank cannot present himself as unknowable, because that would, that would be very damaging to his, um, to his pupils. So he can't cultivate that kind of distant aloofness of a, think- a sort of unknowable God. He has to have a paternal relationship with his students so that they can actually um, get to know him and, and learn virtues in that way from him.
2: So do you think that that is why he conducts his classrooms the way he does? The, way, the reason that he lets characters like uh, uh, Jules Griscom, for example, sort of push back against him? You know, He has these dialogues about theology, like church history and things like that, and he lets them contend with him. Yeah, and at a definitely. certain point, he does shut it down after a while, but is he doing that out of some sort of like, is it is it because of what you're saying there? Is it some sort of pedagogical principle he believes in?
3: I think so. And it's the same pedagogical principle that means that uh, back, back in the first chapters, I think it's page 41 Prescott goes around the school and checks every single part of the campus, right from the the football field to the laboratories in that order that he, mm-hmm. he, he hasn't set this thing, this Justin Martyr in motion and wound up the clock and disappeared. But he's he's present and he's involved in his creation,
2: which is why it must be so difficult for him when it's no longer something that he has. You know yeah, the authority to to review. Hmm. I guess this brings us to you mentioned a second ago. Um, his, there are, that he has his own flaws, and I guess that brings us to Jules Griscom which we should probably discuss before we I mean, at least discuss the first few yeah. sections here. Yeah. Um, we know that he ultimately dies. We've known that for a while and that he considers Jules his greatest failure. And so we get this scene, this sort of sequence of scenes anyway, where Jules arrives at the school late having already known who Frank Prescott is, having the legend of Prescott sort of hanging over him, being uh, afraid might be the word for it. Um, and then when he gets there, he distances himself and he then ultimately runs into trouble and then is inevitably kicked out. And in those moments, Prescott seems the most like some of the, you know, Dickensian characters who run orphanages or something. <laughs> uh, you know, the, he's, the, when he seems the most like that. And yeah, from the outside, we can say, okay, well, I guess there's a great debate. We could have the debate. Does he handle Jules the way that in an appropriate way? Is he justified to, to, to act Towards Jules the way that he does, and I, maybe that's the only conversation we need to have to get deep into this tough part of the book.
0: It's probably it's probably the one we want to have, but I think that we I think that we need to take go back one step earlier to to the very first thing Jules tells us in his memoir, and I think it's telling that and perhaps he notices some about himself, maybe not, but um, like we we know that Griscom felt the need, the elder Griscom felt the need to. Redeem his his father's name, right? His father was mm. the bad, you know, a bad businessman or whatever, bad guy, right? And so there's this this desire, this attempt to redeem the
1: Griscom and name. Prescott
0: even sets him to do that. Says yeah. you need to go
2: redeem your repute, your family's reputation, right?
0: And then Jules sees, tells us, right, at the beginning of his memoir or this section of the memoir that in seventeen chapter seventeen he knows that he was named Jules after his grandfather as the final act of redeeming the grandfather or (laughs) redeeming the name, right? Like, like I'm going to even like, as if elder Griscom is basically saying, I'm going to even make the name Jules a better name than what, you know, the reputation it currently has. And I think that you get from Jules, the younger, the fact, uh, the idea, the, the image that he resents that he resents being used that way. And so now he has this personality. It's that personality, the personality of a a young boy who's resentful of being named and used in that way. Who's now going to live with Frank Prescott.
3: And his response is to go into retreat. And his, Mm. I think ultimately Jules is enmity with Prescott is a kind of religious one or a philosophical one where Jules is essentially the, the archetype of the transcendentalist like Thoreau, who wants to disappear off into the woods like Walden and be mm. introspective and get away from other people. And his idea of hell is, you know, um, organized fun in, and group activity, <laughs> which, which is the opposite of Prescott, who's uh, preaching service Altruism, serving the community, serving one another, being part of a team, acknowledging the um, the sort of ubiquitous impact of original sin that we're all culpable, and and they they clash, and I don't think there can be any reconciliation between Jules and Prescott, and I think Prescott's great tragedy in a way is that he he knows that Jules was right, he was unable to force any kind of redemption on jules and ultimately jules is smashed up against a rock appropriately because in the classroom remember jules says um, you know he couldn't make faith in jesus christ compulsory it could only be a hope and and that's like the thing that jules has got over prescott
2: goes back to the question of free will that
0: matt was talking about yeah Mm -hmm. I, I was at a uh, I was at an education conference in Spain a couple of weeks ago, at the University of Navarra, and um, Scott Kreider, who's a professor at University of Dallas, he wrote a book called The Office of Assertion that we use in some of our training, and he he gave a talk on the Phaedrus, mm. and at one point during the talk or in questions afterward, he said the question of can virtue be taught came up. Mm. And he thought, and he said, he said that there is no way for a teacher to guarantee that the thing he teaches will be adopted by the students and and enacted by the students. And then he said, and thank God.
3: Yeah, that you can only show them.
0: And it never occurred to me that in trying to answer the question, can virtue be taught? And is there a way to teach virtue that would stick, that that would also mean. Then, then there would be a way to teach vice and slavery in a way that would stick. Mm. So he, there have to be failures, right? Because because no, no matter how good Frank is, if Frank doesn't have failures, yeah. then Frank has created a way for the most evil of men to be perfectly successful well, at teaching his exactly. ways. Right?
3: And it, it would also go against the idea that um, human beings are not... So if we believe that the human being is ultimately good and completely free of sin in their nature, then education can save the world because uh, all you need to do is teach someone the right thing to do and then they'll always choose that. But we know that's not what human nature is like. We just have to look at history. Um, That People will know the right thing to do and they will have been taught it and they'll still choose something else. So it, you're right. That would be a, a kind of dangerous idea, and it's it's a very modern idea of education. I think that it can it can save the world, and it's not education that can save the world.
2: Yeah, my dad hates when people talk about saving the world, Yeah. <laughs> changing the world, um,
3: or conceiving of the human being as ultimately good and always able to make the right choice if they only know what that is.
2: Theoretically, though, is there is this a limitation in the teacher or in the nature of pedagogy? So could you, I mean, could a perfect person like pass on virtue? Is it so, I mean, in other words, no matter how hard Frank tries to be virtuous himself, is he always going to fail? Not because it's his problem, but because of the problem of human nature and a problem with, pedagogy or is it because it's a problem with himself is there the distinction even worth asking about
3: well i mean it's much quoted but if we think pontius pilate asks jesus what is truth and and then doesn't stay for an answer i think that's that's kind of the answer to that question
1: i guess
2: uh if we're gonna stay on jesus there's always judas
3: (laughs) right
0: or or god and just adam and eve Hmm.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's the a truth. perfect
0: situation with a perfect teacher and a yeah. perfectly loving father who lost his children
2: so the flaw is neither in the pedagogy nor the teacher although it might be right but it's with the student that the student doesn't always does doesn't have the ears to hear things
3: mm, well, the eyes to see i think that's true
2: yeah well yeah Not i mean I, let's, hypothetically speaking
0: right i think i think what the the picture of adam and eve shows that that it, be more is that it's 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 No matter how perfect the teacher and the pedagogy, the students will are still capable of failing. But then also, but then also, we can see that that the um, the pedagogy can fail and the teacher can fail. Mm
1: -hmm. So it's
0: it's you. We can't pick just one and blame them. They're all all three are always possible of being the fault. So
1: does.
3: this this is the um and this is why i think that prescott is so emphatic about jules's story his greatest failure being included in his um kind of this biography of a saint that brian is writing because prescott is saying look i am not god i am not perfect i don't Mm -hmm. want you to write a kind of gospel (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. the
3: gospel according to you know frank prescott this is i'm a human being and uh and I have, I have flaws and people so, forget that about him.
2: So does Prescott then fail Jules Griscom in these, in these scenes? I mean, does, do you think he acts unjustly towards him? Does, does his interactions with him and the way that he deals with him, um, fail him and keep him from uh, mm. being mm. what Prescott ho- hopes he will, will be
0: in what we've seen so far yeah i mean we have we've read the two chapters i think so but i mean i don't know because it's possible that it's possible that when we get to the you know the rest of the memoirs i don't know how many more chapters there are of it just one maybe two um that you might we might find that the kind of man jules has turned out to be is actually the kind of man that Frank wanted, you know, like I think that happens sometimes, right? Like in those letters that he received at the beginning of the book that it was people are saying i finally I finally cast you know, cast you off from me, and i'm I'm willing to be my own man, but
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, but that's exactly what Frank wanted you to be was somebody who didn't need wasn't dependent on him and could be his own man, right as 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 we see in in his final instructions to Brian,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right, S- separate yourself from me and be your own man um, so. I mean they're like like those people think that Frank failed but he he actually succeeded. I don't know if there's going to be a sense of that with Jules or not. I mean definitely right now there's not. There's you I don't know. I sympathize with Jules. I think that Frank pushed too far
3: with the destruction of the the sort of um idyllic romantic huts in the countryside alongside the river.
0: Yes, and the with the expulsion of the And then the expulsion. Friends, yeah.
3: I think the first thing really was in a way more significant because that's where the the clash of their their beliefs or their philosophies comes and after that what uh, what Jules does is kind it's kind of a bit puerile and a bit um a bit of a reaction isn't it because because what Prescott is saying is no you're not going to be an introspective transcendentalist you're not disappearing off into the woods on your own, you're going to stay here and be part of this community. And then, of course, it's highly appropriate that what Jules does is he locks Frank into his study and isolates him yeah. and prevents him from coming into the community of the chapel. And, and so it's, it's <laughs> a good. very appropriate revenge that he takes.
2: Yeah, I was thinking how it's got a sort of... He, he is kind of... keep Prescott is sort of keeping Jules from pursuing his inner Thoreau Yeah. Given that they're living in the Boston as well. Walden Pond was probably, you know, 30 miles from where they are.
0: But and he but he also shows not necessarily Jules, but Jules' friends that they want the larger society, the larger community. Right. Because they're the most hurt by having Mm. lost it when they can't go, when they can't graduate from Justin Martin, they can't go to Harvard. So the the larger community. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Which is the larger community that they're being disconnected from, which they thought they wanted to be disconnected from by attaching themselves to Jules. Which is
3: the original argument that Prescott has with Jules in his study about the destruction of the huts, about original sin and about how we're all tainted with it. So it's entirely appropriate that for isolating Prescott, Jules' punishment is that all his friends are also sent down or expelled because he's being shown that there are Public consequences to private actions, and you can't exist as as this kind of um, this man who is an island. It's it's not true, is what Prescott is trying to show him. He won't compromise.
2: The little bit about how Ives is always watching, that there's always Mm -hmm. someone seeing you do what you think no one's seeing you do, is kind of kind of funny, but also I think kind of genius in exploring what you're talking about there. That that nothing is truly just private that there are public consequences. I think we're seeing, I think that's also
0: a theme in the Cordelia chapters as well. Yeah. Mm. But, but as you're saying, thanks to Ives. Yeah. Nothing's ever private because Ives always. Yeah. And it
2: cannot be, I was thinking there cannot be an accident that the word Ives sounds pretty close to eyes. And also that Ivy just grows everywhere. Yeah, hmm. like it's kind of like a weed that's it's everywhere. It takes over everything and in some ways it's kind of beautiful and makes things work. But then at the same time, it's like this, this, uh, it's, it kind of overcomes everything. It, I don't want to say poison, but it's, you know, it's sort of ubiquitous
1: <laughs>
3: pervasive. <laughs> um, mm.
2: pervasive. Yeah. That's the word. Yeah. Mm. Um,
3: there's another sort of tit for tat with, um, Jules and Prescott as well where at the end of chapter 17 Jules's poem rejected by the Justinian mm-hmm. is published in Vanity Fair
2: <laughs> of all places.
3: Yeah, and Vanity Fair is a re- it's a reference to Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and it's the city of kind of idle pleasures. So his work of art is rejected by you know Justin martyr which maybe is some kind of celestial city or something and it's taken up in the alternative world and this is a kind of triumph for Jules.
2: I love how you can kind of read what he says, what what he says to Griscom in so many different ways. Like he says, "You've put us on the map, Griscom." There may be a question in some minds if that is if that is where we wish to be, but nobody can belittle the feat of us getting there. Uh, you know, and you could read there with a certain kind of emphasis, of, as if to say the there being Vanity Fair in particular, mm-hmm. um, not the map, but being in Vanity Fair, um, being in the how did you put it? What the city of pleasure or whatever? It's
3: the city of idle pleasures. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, And so, you know, he, he, it's not that he doesn't love the idea that he has a gifted student who can write a poem that's worthy of being published, but you know, what's the map that they're wanting to be on? Um, Mm. What's the, what's the city on the map rather, not the map that they have, you know, a problem being on, but what city on the map are they? If you think about it in the pilgrim's progress, what, what city along the journey would they rather have that
0: poem published in? (laughs) Right, what what's the last bit of that of that chapter? The um, but Prescott, like all the great idiots of history, was always willing to burn the world for a toy, a prayer across a thimble. Yeah, was mm-hmm. it a toy, a prayer across a thimble? Is that an allusion or a reference to something like that? Yes, list?
3: It, it probably is, and it, it's a direct parallel to the four things he has on his desk in his study that are all uh, made of gold or brass where he has a fish, a crucifix, um, a miniature of Trinity mm. Church in Boston and a mitre. And it's, it's almost as if Jules reduces the, the faith or the world of, of Prescott to these little trinkets. Mm. And um, it's, it's also something about Brian as well, where at one point he says, I, I would rather have the relic than the saint. Mm-hmm that there's always a danger of things being diminished to the material world and then losing their their true significance. Because to perhaps to a non-believer, faith looks like magic. And these are talismans. These are little talismanic Hmm. trinkets. Um, So it's also the same as a bit later where Jules says, I saw you weren't God. I saw you don't even believe in God, even in yourself as God. I saw you were only a cardboard dragon.
2: I did I did get curious about the thimble thing, and apparently thimbles throughout history are something you give to someone for good luck. So there's a um, talisman type yeah. connection to it. And they're kind of like and then there's also the practical, like to avoid getting hurt. <laughs> there's a practical tool that, that you give it, but then there's somehow along throughout history they became something that you gave to yeah. uh, to people who who were going on journeys and things like that, even. And oftentimes if you Google it. I kept seeing a lot of references to thimbles that had crosses etched on them, carved on them, painted on them, things like that. Um, So in some ways, a toy, a prayer, a cross, a thimble could all be things you give to somebody as well for various, based on, you know, you could say for good luck in a sense, for good fortune, for goodwill, things like that.
3: What's so interesting is that um, back when Prescott was at Oxford, the thing he says is, I can't stand miracles. Um, oh, yeah. and yet now he keeps being mistaken for some sort of magician and Cecilia huh. uh, Cordelia actually calls him a magician and he's compared it kept sort of smacking me in the face throughout these chapters the number of times he's compared to some sort of artifice theatrical artifice vaudeville, Iago, Tamburlaine
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, again and again he's a puppet master and um, but Again, the irony is he's not. He's not. This is the problem with the materialistic or the materialist's view of Prescott is that he looks like a fake.
2: The funny thing about these chapters where he calls him a puppet master is then you th- you then get David Griscom, who really is the puppet master mm. of Jewel's life. He gets him into Harvard. You know, he thinks he can control the whole situation. Oh, oh right. He, he just, he tells him, this is exactly what you're going to do. You're going to do what I say. You're not going to go to Europe. You're not going to figure yourself out. You're going to do exactly what I say and I'm going to make it all work. It's almost... You know, it's, it's, it's a more, you know, perhaps a more, uh, affectionate, well, although is it really way to, uh, to deal with his son than what Frank does, but he's way more of a puppet master than Frank ever, because Frank allows those four boys to decide their own fate. Mm-hmm. You know, they just don't believe him. They don't believe that he says what he's going to that he's going to do what he says. That's he's right. The choices. And maybe the choice that he gives them is harsh. Like there's, you could debate that. Yeah. And maybe he should have shown them mercy. But he does tell them what he's going to do mm. and they say, oh, he'll, he's bluffing, right? Yeah, they, they think they they're, to they think they're bluff, going to be right. more clever than he is. And he just says, I told you what I was going to
0: do. I was telling the truth. And even afterwards, uh, Jules says, and then I decided to be diplomatic for once. And I went and I told him that I was sorry for what I did. Yeah. And that I understood the punishment, but I hoped that he wouldn't extend it to my, to the fr- to the other boys. Yeah. And then Frank's like, no, that's not how things work. I told you the truth. <laughs> that's tree. not how
3: things work. Yeah. You can't, you can't isolate yourself like that. Yeah. Um, The other paradox is that for all the comparisons made between Prescott and um, his kind of theatrical control of, of things, his own image or other people, Prescott himself feels that he is the dancing bear or the clown. Hmm. In the spotlight, mm-hmm. and that he also is controlled by Griscom. So, hmm.
0: even his successor was chosen by Griscom, according to the daughter.
1: Hmm.
0: Right, that even that that Griscom's, Griscom's daughter, daughter says that her daddy even found, even found Duncan Moore to be the replacement.
3: Hmm. Um, the the Ch- Chesterton short story that features so broadly in. Bride's Revisited, a twitch upon the thread.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Seems quite appropriate here as well. <laughs> that Charlie sees mm. Prescott as um, the kind of master of the hounds who with the touch of his finger can make the heckles on the back of his neck go down. Um, mm-hmm. And it's the same confusion all the time. As who's pulling the thread? Is it God or is it Prescott?
2: And he calls him, as you've mentioned, he calls him he said it's it's a tough job for a boy to deal with a diplomat and a general at the same time, mm-hmm. like the general who just moves the troops around on the board, but also the diplomat who has to deal with the consequences of those actions. you know he's dealing with individual people in smoky rooms, mm-hmm. but also he's moving troops around you know like a like, you know like someone who's playing risk, um, so hes to deal with the individuals and the sort of big picture movements of people um and I think that in some ways he means that in sort of a sort of insulting way, but it's also sort of a compliment to to Prescott's skills as a, as a headmaster, because a headmaster, you know, as you said, it must be a difficult job. You have to be the general and the diplomat at the same time. Yeah. And those are two very different skill sets. Um, and it doesn't mean that he's not flawed. He admits it by himself or he admits it himself, as you said, which is why he wants, Jules's story included in his yeah. hagiography. <clears throat> All right. Final thoughts. We should wrap it up. Matt, you want to go first? Got anything? What are you looking for as we, we're going to be reading to the end of the book, this next section. So what do you, what should people look for? What are you looking for? Or do you want to add anything that we didn't talk about?
0: I want to see, I want to see there. I want, I'm hoping to find something redemptive in the story of Jules. Um, And then I expect that, Jules' father, David, will erect a bronze statue of Frank at Justin Martyr and then make people bow down to it, just as Sarah Jane
1: said.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sarah Jane, what about you?
3: Um, I think we need to pick up the bird the bird motif again. Mm. We we find out that Griscom is a spotter. Griscom has no appreciation yeah. of nature, Jules says, and yet he keeps a list of birds. And at oh, the, end,
1: it,
2: the section ended with... Uh,
1: the end of the chapter. Yes,
0: I totally so, missed that again. Yeah. Man, I've even been well, looking I, for the bird thing since you said it. <laughs> oh,
2: I should have brought my field glasses. I could swear that was a great northern shrike, he says. Yes,
3: exactly. And earlier he he paused to identify a bird... And yep. once he expressed surprise at seeing a chewing early in the season, there are also lots of references to geese. Um, Who I fly wonder, in order,
0: by the way. I'm so bad at finding birds.
3: <laughs> wonder, You're not a very are, good
2: bird watcher.
3: What not. do birds represent? Do they represent the Holy Spirit? Do they represent um, some kind of spirituality that is kind of there behind the text somewhere? I, I don't know. Um, I think it's interesting that That Griscom is a spotter. He doesn't love nature, he just keeps a list. Mm -hmm. Um,
2: Like me, I just keep lists of the books that I read and just so I can (laughs) add the next book onto the list. I don't actually care about the books. I just want to be a person who keeps long lists of books that I read.
3: (laughs) I actually think that Alkencloss is doing something clever with the bird imagery and that we might see it come to a kind of head later because I'm sure there's another reference to Macbeth. And, um, obviously bird imagery is really powerful in Macbeth.
2: We'll have to have you take us through that then when we get to the end of the book.
3: I think Mm -hmm. there's something there in that. um...
0: Well, we'd like 3000 words for next week then. Mm. uh, (laughs) We should do a crossover episode with the plays of thing and close reads where we bring Macbeth and Rector of Justin and birds into.
2: That'll just be next week. I think that's why,
0: that's why Sarah (laughs) Jane's here, right?
3: There are so many references to Shakespeare in here though, aren't there? Mm. Just, a
0: lot, yeah. yeah. It's I like, like when she's when Cordelia says, and then my other sister, we call her Gonoril.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's very kind of her.
3: And then the hilarious thing is that the biggest owner of um, original manuscripts of um, Elizabethan plays is Griscom, who, again, he's a mm, yeah. spotter. He keeps a list of them. He doesn't he's really, really have any appreciation of what they contain. Mm it's all about the the material for
2: him. I always, well, we can talk about that next time. We should probably wrap this up, but yeah. um, remember everyone, you can send in questions, close reads podcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group. And you can um, put your uh, question there on that thread. We'll open that thread up here soon. And then on Instagram and Twitter, you can follow us at close reads pods. Uh, I guess that's it. We'll, we'll finish, uh, finish the book for next week. Don't forget about the plays, the thing Heidi and, and uh tim are talking about the tempest right now and i believe the first three acts of that are up Uh, maybe the fourth act by the time this episode goes live so uh be be sure to check out those conversations if you love the tempest or if you don't then you probably should so you might as well listen and learn to love it um anything else i think is that it i think we're good final chapters next week q a after that I think that covers all the business sarah jane matt thanks for joining me Thanks.
3: Yeah, it was great to chat as ever. Speak to you next week.
2: Yeah, sounds good. All right. Well, for Sarah Jane and for Matt, I'm David Kern. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. And in the meantime, happy reading.